Some of you who shot crap last night, uh, let me know. We'll try to loan you some money. <laughs> well, I feel a little bit like World War II. Uh, the SS Ron has lobbed in some tremendous bombs from offshore and hit you right on the beachhead. Some of you dug in pretty deep, but they still got you out. And then uh, there was this SS Jackson that came in from above and dropped his atomic bombs on you. And then there's always a couple little submarines around. Uh, the SS Parker and the SS Hendrickson that sneak in, seemingly very innocent. And you get up and start walking away, and you'll find you got shrapnel, <laughs> not only in your heart, but in your butt. And, uh, and then uh, I come along, and they've asked me to put some Band-Aids on and to pour in a little oil and salve and to help you guys re realize, you know, that life is not all the Marines. And uh, so that's my job this morning. You've had the heavy guns. Now you've got me. Hmm? This? Where does this go, sir? Excuse us, we don't know how to do this. 1870, there was a lawyer. Well, because we've had lawyers since Jesus' day. I mean, you know what he thought of them. Um, <laughs> but in 1870, there was a lawyer in Austin, Texas. You don't believe that they had them in those days. The Civil War's over. And his name was... Samuel Maverick, and uh, he had a rancher that couldn't pay his bill, and that's not unusual. A uh, hundred and some odd years later, it's still the same thing. Price of beef was terrible, and uh, we're just perpetual gripers and complainers. And uh, so Sam said, well, you got to pay me. So the guy gave him 400 head of steer, this is a true story. And uh, some cows. Well, he wasn't particularly interested in cattle. He was making money as a lawyer, as you know, how they make it. And uh, so he didn't bother to brand them or anything. He just let them roam. And he didn't care whose grass they ate. And a uh, cowboy would come up in the early 70s, and he'd find a steer, and he said, who's that? And he said, oh, you know that, that's Mavericks. And it's stuck for these 115 years. If you don't know who it belongs to, it's a Maverick. And uh, you're looking at one this morning. And as I mentioned the other night, that I am what I am, by the grace of God. 
just a maverick that uh, has a hard time being lassoed and tied down and branded. But isn't God faithful? And uh, don't look at me that way because you are one too. <laughs> and uh, we like to do our own thing, huh? It is tough to sit and listen to some of the stuff we've heard this weekend. Just listening to stewardship. Wow. You know, to hear Ron Blue say, it isn't ours, it all belongs to him. It's his. My wife is up in Denver these days at a gift show, and, you know, you, you get so you depend upon your wife. And I was thinking this morning as I was praying through the day, and uh, praying for the various messages, and then I have to go down right afterwards to a navigator board meeting, and which time we put sort of okay upon the new leadership after 30 years, Lord, and today's the day of decision, and on through the day. And I was thinking, hey, stewardship. And perhaps one of the greatest stewardships I have is my wife. I believe there's going to come a day when I stand before the Lord and I have to give an account of what have I done with my wife. Ever think of it that way? The investment that I have in that gal. She's more than just the bearer of three boys and a daughter. She's just more than one who's made some great meals and provided a wonderful home and the one who got me on track at the age of 30, etc. But I have a, not only the responsibility of my money and responsibility of this ranch and a ministry and a lot of other things, but the ministry of my wife, a stewardship. But we have another stewardship, and it's in the Fifth chapter of Second Corinthians. Beginning with verse eleven. Taking notes, why the outline is rather simple. It's right here. Verses 1, uh, 11 through 16 is the motive. Our motive. Verses 17 through 19 our message. And then 20 through 6-4, our ministry. Romans, Paul's great epistle, which nobody will ever plumb the depth. It's like... Uh, skating on ice down here in our little pond. There's four 
six inches of ice, and uh, that's about what we see. We don't know how deep it is. People always are asking me in the summertime, um, how deep is it by that little island there? And it looks very shallow, but it's about ten foot deep right there, and there's some great big boulders, and that's where the big trout are, <laughs> hanging out down there in a hot summer day right by those things. And I think so oftentimes we skate on the thin ice of the book of Romans, but we never see how deep it is, the depths of that. And the book of Romans is God's great letter of salvation, justification by faith. First Corinthians is God's great message on sanctification. In reverse, with all the problems of the Corinthian church. Sanctification by faith. Now, 2 Corinthians is God's great message on service. How to serve God by faith. You've got to start with salvation, huh? You've got to know whom you have believed. And then there's got to be a life of holiness. In the front of my Bible is a little expression. I, I want to be able to live it by incarnation. I have problems with it, but this is the expression. It says, the validation of my witness is in the degree of the excellence of my performance. The validation of my witness is in the degree of the excellence of my performance. If I'm not living it, why should anybody care about having what I talk about? It's true in sales. It's true in service. It's true in the Christian life. We moved up here 26 years ago to try to show a secular society that there is something in the Christian life. We try to keep 80% of our clientele non-Christian. That's tough. The only way we can really keep Christians out is to keep raising the rates. <laughs> And because of Ron Blue, we do not honor any credit cards. It's cash on the barrelhead. Oh, that's the way to do business, huh? Amen. <laughs> the validation of my witness is in the degree of the excellence of my performance. Wednesday night, a Learjet will land at the Colorado Springs Airport. And coming off that plane will be Mr. and Mrs. Hank. I don't know why they're coming, except he called two weeks ago, and said, could my wife and I have dinner with you and Marion? 
Now, Jerry's got more important things to do than to fly to Colorado Springs. He's chairman of the board and chief executive officer of Montgomery Elevator. He's on the executive committee of Notre Dame University. He's on the board of ten other great corporations. Why would he take the time to fly to Colorado Springs to have dinner? That's why he's coming. And after dinner, they'll go out and their pilot will take them on to Moline, Illinois, where they live. I believe he's coming because we have been praying for him for six years. His boy accepted the Lord out here when he was on staff. We've been in their home, spent six years just trying to love the dear guy. Wonderful guy. Marvelous guy. <laughs> when you have endowed four chairs of education at Notre Dame University, you're in big bucks. Because they run 500 to a million dollars a chair. By the way, he was chairman of the athletic committee the last several years, and you know what he's been going through, huh? <laughs> wow. But I know, as that plane lands Wednesday night at 5 o'clock, coming in from Santa Fe, New Mexico, that the validation of my witness to Jerry and his dearly beloved wife is not going to be on the performance of my talk, huh? Or where we take them to dinner. Or how long I pray over the food. Or while, whether I say no thanks to the waitress when she asks me what kind of a drink I want. Now, it's been based upon these six or eight years we've known them. Is there something in my lifestyle that demands an explanation? Is there something about you that so radiates what you have in your heart that people want it? When the pressure's on, and that's where the 11th verse of the 5th chapter of 2 Corinthians begins. Okay? There's sort of a holy hush in here. Man, you must have really lit it on him. Take a breath. Don't just sit there. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm reading from the authorized version. <laughs> Knowing therefore, and you better get a hold of the first ten verses of what the therefore is about. And it's about one word, Bema. And I'm not even going to tell you what that means because I don't know. Ask Hendricks. That's what he's here for. <laughs> Knowing therefore the Bema, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not because of our sin, but because of our service. What in the name of heaven are you doing for the Lord? That's what he says. Knowing therefore, and I like to put it in the first person singular, I persuade 
men. This is our motive. I want to win men to Jesus Christ. I know you rebel at that little phrase, soul winning. We're not just winning souls. We're trying to win lies for the Lord, huh? Paul says it. We, we shy away from born again. Well, then get a knife and cut out the third chapter of John because that's all Jesus talked about. So Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also un, are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on your behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them who glory in appearance and not in heart. In other words, we're not trying to produce ourselves. We're not trying to get people to be impressed with who we are and the cross we've got on our coat and the size of our black nylon-stitched India paper Bible. No, that's not what we're trying to impress people with. We want them to know Christ. We want them to get excited about the Lord. So he says in verse 13, you think I'm crazy. You think I belong to the Salvation Army with a timbrel, you know? Whether we're beside ourselves, it's to God, or whether we be of sober mind, it's for your cause. And now Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, his favorite verse, the reason he got started with these high school kids, the love of Christ constrains us. And the word constrain there is a Greek word that means overmasters us. Hems us in. Controls us. By the way, what is your motivation? What controls you? And that's probably what you're giving your life to, huh? Chuck Newkirk's spiritual daddy is a plumber. Chuck Davis. Chuck and I were partners for years together in the plumbing business. Chuck's pulpit is the basement and attic of people's homes, businesses. Chuck today, probably on paper and with the bank, is a millionaire. I was making more cash flow 28 years ago when I was still in the plumbing business than I'm making today. I have no problem with Chuck and the success that he has made and the real estate that he owns and the condominiums that he's building and all the rest. I'm excited for him. Praise God, that's where he should be. And I thank God for this privilege. This is my pulpit. Because what overmasters him is what overmasters me, the love of Christ. And God has put us all in the body 
not to be thumbs or mouths or ears, but each one his own place, huh? Supposing we were all a Gail Jackson. What a mess the body would be in, huh? <laughs> God made one Gail Jackson and threw the mole away and said, that's enough. Well, listen, thank God for Gail Jackson, huh? And so we can go on. The thing is, it's the love of Christ, not the love of the church, although I love the church. It isn't even the love for the Bible or I love the Bible. I love the fellowship. There's a lot of things I love. But it's the love of Christ. Oh, Jim Rayburn, I wish you could have known him. Quite a guy. Lived in Colorado Springs. He graduated from University of Oklahoma in engineering. He was a geologist. He loved gems, rocks. Felt called, as his father was, to the ministry. Father was a Presbyterian evangelist. We don't have them anymore. <laughs> Enough said. Um, he went to Dallas Seminary. Enough said. Got a burden for high school kids in a nearby community. This first got a hold of him. And his description of five... 14 is the Greek word to him, overmasters, hemmed in, has the idea held in a vice. A lot of you guys were weaned in the business world on Napoleon Hill, on this whole matter of growing rich. And you take that book and read it, and then step back and look at it, it comes down to one word. Obsession. Huh? Unless you are obsessed with that concept, you'll never hack it in the secular society of today. And I appreciate Napoleon Hill and all of his counterparts. But boy, then you bring it over, and that's exactly what Paul's saying here to the Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is nothing than an autobiography of why I am doing what I'm doing the way I'm doing, and it's because the love of Christ is holding me in a vice. It's the love. It isn't the law of Christ. It isn't that I have to do it. I want to do it. It's his love. I love him. Why? Because he first loved me. For God so loved Bob Foster that he gave his only begotten son. And Paul says it's that love that hit him on the road to Damascus. And he asked two questions. Who art thou, Lord? 
And what do you want me to do? And until you answer those two questions, you're on the outside looking in as far as service. Your job is your pulpit. Your home is your pulpit. Your first congregation is your wife and your children. Boy, if you do nothing but win them and love them and equip them, you've done your job. But we reach out into a secular society. That's where you're living, huh? The marketplace today. Who else is in that marketplace? Your pastor isn't. You look at the curriculums of the seminaries of America. They teach nothing really on how to reach the secular man in the marketplace. And you're there. You're there. Once a month I get a notice from this guy over here that there's going to be a luncheon at a hotel in Catalina Springs, and such and such a layman is going to speak. Hey, bring some of your friends with you and hear what this guy has to say from his perspective in the marketplace. How do you respond to something like that? Well, evidently, verse 14 hasn't grabbed you yet. The love of Christ holds me like a vice. And Jim Rayburn took that one little high school situation just outside of Dallas, Texas, and today, you know the impact of young life. Thousands and thousands and thousands of kids have come to know the Savior. I bet some of you are the result of young life. One man. One man in God is a majority. If the love of Christ really grabs you. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. In that he died for all, that those who live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Wow, that cuts, huh? But unto him. That's our message. The Christ of Calvary went into the grave. Three days later he came forth victorious. On the 28th day of this month, we'll celebrate Easter. The resurrection of Christ. One of the greatest doctrines in the Scripture. And that's what he says. That's our message, our motive, is we persuade man because the love of Christ constrains us. What is our message? That one died for all. Because all are dead. Henceforth, we're not going to live for ourselves, but we're going to live for him. Who died for them and rose again, that henceforth, know we, no man after the flesh. In other words, I'm not concerned what people say. I'm not concerned about 
how they feel about me. As long as I'm pleasing Him, I'll please the right people down here. I am concerned. I am my brother's keeper. I want to listen to the voice. But he said, I'm not responsible. No man after the flesh. Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know Him no more. In other words, He's not here. He's up there. He's the... uh, Ascended Christ, he's at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for me. Now another therefore. Therefore in verse 11, the therefore in verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath made us reconciled to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us, what? The ministry of reconciliation. Gentlemen, that's our ministry. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled. We're the ones that are lost sheep, huh? We're the ones that have left. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. I can't convince Jerry of that Wednesday night. He cannot see that all of the millions that he's given doesn't account to a hill of beans for salvation. And yet he'll go to Mass faithfully as he does and acknowledge the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But somehow or other, my good works do count. Gentlemen, they don't until I have made peace with God. huh? It's the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is to see that men and women are reconciled to God through Christ. Not by works of righteousness that we have done. To wit, in other words, this is the ministry of reconciliation, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Him not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, what? The word of reconciliation. He's committed unto us. He could have committed unto angels. He hasn't committed it just to our pastors, our Sunday school teachers. The electronic preachers. I want to lay it on you this morning that you have a ministry in this secular society. Notice in verse 20, one description of that ministry. Now then, on the basis of that, that's the then, Right now, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. All that's involved in being an ambassador 
a representative in a foreign country, in a foreign culture, with a foreign language, in a foreign lifestyle. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. We're tenting. We do not put our roots down deep. Huh? We're ambassadors. Our home's up there. Our king is up there. Our instructions are from up there. You say, Foster, you're meddling. You betcha. Because this is where I live. I am an ambassador for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us. We beg you in Christ's stead. And that beseeching is not just sort of, hey, fellas, let's flip the coin on whether we should or shouldn't. He gets excited about that. He spends a whole book sharing from his own life. He said, okay, you don't like the way I look. I'm despicable to look at. You don't like the way I talk. You say, he's not so hot. Paul said, hey, I grant you all that. Not that we recommend ourselves as if we are anything. But our recommendation is from God. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not worthy of it. Not only we're we an ambassador, but look over in verse 1 of chapter 6. We then are workers together with Christ. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm a worker together with Him. He has sent me, but He said, you're not going to have to do it by yourself, Foster. You're going to be a worker together with me. Now, salvation is all of Him. It's all of grace. It isn't a joint effort. I'll do my part, and He'll do His part, and together, I'll get out of hell. I'm on my, no, it's all of Him. All of Him. But once that He has made me His Son, then He says, hey, I want to take you into partnership. And you know what partnership is, huh? Some of you are in it. Some wish you were out of it. Some of you say, how in the world? Some of you are sitting here figuring, how can I get out of it? That's going to be your big thing the next couple of days, huh? Be not unequally yoked together. Boy, the next chapter, he comes down on that. The latter part of the sixth chapter. Don't be involved in a situation with somebody else where your hands are tied financially, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. As soon as you can, get out of it. Not because I say it, because... Everybody respects you, but a worker. Whoo! That's sweat. And if you've ever tried to reach men for Christ, you know that it's work, huh? 
It's work to get on that phone and call a guy and ask him for a, a luncheon engagement. Notice verse 4. But in all things, recommending ourselves as ministers of God, ambassadors for God, workers with God, ministers of God. If you would take those three little prepositions, for, with, of, you'll get the full orb of what it means to be a witness in the marketplace as a businessman. And the word minister here sounds like ordination, huh? It sounds churchy. Oh, that our pastors, our ministers would realize that that word means servant. Bond slave. The pastor of our church is the slave of the people. He is the pyramid upside down. He is on the bottom serving the congregation. He is the least of all. And so are we. Don't just put your finger on him. We are ministers of God. And then he goes ahead to say some of the problems that you'll get into if you be, you take the place of being a slave of Jesus Christ. And boy, it isn't a rosy picture, beginning in verse 4 down through verse 10. It is tough. Isn't it amazing that everything was great until you accepted Christ, and then the roof fell in? Marriage, finances, relationships, children, the community. Right? And that's what Paul said. But there's a reason for it, because God has his training program, and he's allowing you right now to go through the pressure cooker that he can bring you out on the other end to the glory of Jesus Christ. And most of us need that squeezing and those hurts and those heartaches and those unexplainables and the question marks that may never be answered. You feel a little bit like Job. Why? That he'll get the glory. There's a very common little expression in the evangelical world. And I understand, but I don't agree with it. It says, saved to serve. That isn't why Christ has saved me. One of the byproducts of salvation in the book of Romans is that I will serve, but that isn't why he did it. He has saved me to bring glory to himself. A lot of you were weaned on catechism, huh? Regardless of what the church was. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, the purpose of man, is to glorify him and to enjoy him 
forever. Fellas, if we could wind up this conference excited about Jesus Christ, excited that we have the privilege of being ambassadors, of being workers, of being servants. I beseech you, verse 20, we beg you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, a very simple little paraphrase of verse 21. Well, let me read it. He hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And a paraphrase simply is, he became what I am, that I might become what he is. And boy, if that doesn't turn you on this morning, you're out to lunch. He became what I am, sin. Six hours on the cross, taking the sins of all the world, even to the place where the Father had to turn his back, and, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God could not look upon sin. My Christ, the Lamb of God, became my sin-bearer. He took my sin in his own body on the tree. Why? So that I might become what he is. Imputed righteousness. So when God the Father looks down, he sees me not for what I am, but he sees me through Jesus Christ And he said, there's my righteous son. Isn't that terrific? One of you Baptists should say amen. Amen. I'll say ooh out of that one. (laughs) Listen to the way Martin Luther puts verse 21. You took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. God sees you this morning. He doesn't see you as you see yourself and as we see you. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you for waking up. (laughs) Now you say, Foster, that's a lot of preaching. Yeah. Let me share a couple things. How do I translate that into action right where I live? Very quickly here, thanks to Jim Peterson. Number one, I've got to build a philosophy of life that's attractive to men. When I say I have to build it, that's working together with God. He's going to do it, huh? It isn't me that attracts men. It's Christ living in me, he who is the hope of glory. But there has to be a philosophy of life that I have worked on and I have thought about and I've studied from this book. I have to model a viable option to those that I work with. There in the office, out there in the marketplace, on the phone, letter writing, over the lunch, playing handball, playing golf, wherever it is. There has to be that modeling. 
And according to the second chapter of this book, we are a sweet aroma of Christ to the saved and to the non-saved. And he says, who's sufficient? I'm not. You're not. But God will do it through us. Number two, not only building a philosophy that's attractive to those that are on. And by the way, the secular society is looking for some answers to life. I think most of us have been conned in to expect a negative response. Ah, oh, the world is not interested. They're not interested in the caricature they have seen. They're not interested in the institution. But they are interested in a businessman who's got peace. And who's got contentment. And for some reason or other knows the joy of sin forgiven. And who has a philosophy of life that's positive And excited. And causes his chin, his lips to go up and not down. Huh? And this is controlled from down here. And so, number two, you need to find a balance in the reaping mentality of our day. Unless you're a soul winner, unless you're notching men on the on your gun, and you can tell somebody how many people you've won to Christ this last year, we feel like we're a failure. God will produce the results, huh? One man soweth, another man watereth. But what? Tell me. God gives the harvest. Our job is to be sowers of the seed. Our job is to water. Our job is to cultivate. God sends His Son, S-U-N. Last October, I planted down here in the middle meadow about five acres of seed. Cost us about $400. Got the best seed we could get from our county agent. They recommended it. I worked that lot. I, I spent, oh, must have been six weeks getting that land ready. Used to be a creek that went through there. And I got my Tonka toy over here stuck so many times, Kenny almost said I wish God would take him home to heaven. But uh, I'm still here. And uh, we finally got that thing leveled off, and then we disc it, and we herald it, and it still wasn't level, and so we'd work it over some more and then disc it and herald. And finally there came the day on the back of the tractor I put that seed thrower, and we put that three, four, five hundred dollars worth of seed in there, and I spread the seed, and then we covered it over. That was October. October, November, December, January, February, March, April, and maybe in the eighth month now, we'll start to see little green suits. Man, I wanted, I, I'd go out there every week or so and see if anything was coming up. Well, you remember October, huh? It was midwinter. And the ground was frozen. 
I want results. You want results. That's why you're a businessman. And your company says results, quotas, do better than last year. And our whole society is based that last year is simply the foundation for more this year. You know we take that right into our Christianity. Unless I win more people to Christ this year than I did last year, I'm going this way. I've got to read more Scripture. I've got to spend more time in my quiet time. I've got, got to do more. There's a new book coming out. I tried to get it. It isn't on the marketplace yet. Counteracting this whole success syndrome. Now, God wants us to be successful. I'm not running it down. But there's more to it than just that. You see, John Stott, I think he's right on when he says, evangelism is 90% love. Why should men want your Christ if they don't believe you love them? Why did the good Samaritan do what the priest and the Levite couldn't do? They had all the equipment. They had all the knowledge. They knew the Mosaic law. He loved. He loved. Evangelism is a process. Now, I grant you, it's also a decision. <laughs> but basically, most of the men that you're working with, that you're concerned about, some of your own brothers and relatives and business associates, that you're sitting here thinking about the, the, the Jerry's of your life, they may not be flying in Wednesday night in a Learjet, but they're very real in your life. Hey, Six years I've been trying to love Jerry. It was a tough one. I have a little newsletter. been writing it 26 years. And uh, it's gotten to the place now where my wife and daughter can't handle it anymore as far as just it's up around 12,000, 13,000 men. Uh, some kind of equipment computer so we could just do it better and the letter writing and the mailing list you know you're involved in that so we prayed and I got a letter from Jerry early last summer and he writes to me periodically and um, I don't preach at him and I try to help him and he was writing about a situation and wrote back, and uh, he had asked if he could do anything for me. And I, I said, I just wish, Jerry, that you would pray. He loves the challenge. He pins it up on his executive bulletin board there in the uh, Montgomery Towers, the biggest building in, in the Tri-Cities there along the river. And uh, 
he pins this little letter that called the challenge. It's on blue stationery, and he pins it up there, and he expects all of his men to read it. And uh, he likes it, and he... And so he, in this letter he'd mentioned, and I said, I, I, we're just trying to do a better job with that, and we need some equipment, and appreciate your prayers. He called. A week or so later, I wasn't home, and Marion said, well, I think Bob is thinking probably in the terms of ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000. In September, I got a check for $12,000 for a computer. A challenge check. He said, now would you find a group of men that will match this so that you can equip it with software and, and uh, the training process and all will go into it. Now here's a man who isn't even a Christian. He's religious. And that was embarrassing, you know. And I, wrote, I called him and I said, Jerry, I can't take this. He said, listen, it was through you and your staff that my son accepted the Lord. His son was 18 when he came out here. Jim flunked out of Notre Dame. He and his father had not talked for six years. Had not talked for six years since he was 12. His son was a chain smoker and an alcoholic, 18 years of age. He was going just like this. And over here in the bunkhouse, two months later, he gave his heart to Jesus. That would be the end of September that year. Once again, his dad and mother got into a jet and flew out here to see this thing that has come to pass. Because within a week or so after Jim accepted the Lord, he called his dad and said, Dad, I want you to forgive me. I want to start a dialogue. I want you to know I love you and I love mother and I love my sisters. And the dad thought he was drunk. What tavern are you at? I'm here at Lost Valley Ranch. He started writing letters. He didn't preach at them. He didn't try to convert them. He just wanted them to know after all these years, this 18-year-old, he's 19 then, that fell unworthy. You see, we got the idea that somehow or other our instantaneous lifestyle is going to apply over into the spiritual. The third thing, you've got to face up to the problems, and that is three basic problems. The problem of isolation, and the longer you become Christians, the less non-Christians you'll probably have. Because the fellowship of the believers is so cozy, huh? And man, do we love our music our songs, and do we love our fellowship and our vocabulary? we got all this neat literature, and the world could care less. And we've isolated ourselves. And we're afraid. Somehow or other, Satan has gotten us into the place where, oh man, he wouldn't want my, you know, he wouldn't want what I have. We're afraid of being rebuked. We're afraid to have him say, hey, listen, Foster, that's great for you, but that's not where I'm coming from. Huh? And the third fear we have, and that is, 
How do you adapt to them? The fear of adaptation. Jesus was called the friend of sinners and publicans. Our president interprets that, that Jesus was the friend of sinners and republicans. That's true. Jesus is the friend of Democrats and Republicans. But whether it be fear or isolation or how do you adapt to their lifestyle and their interests and their vocabulary, they're worse than 18 wheelers. As far as their talk, most of them talk below their waist. Gentlemen, you know the answer that I have found in my own life? Most of us are incredibly busy. So busy that we don't have time to love. We don't have time to be an ambassador, to be a worker, to be a servant. And if I'll start taking time, and right now is a good time, just to zero in on somebody. The juries in your life. Who think if I could just give him a $12,000 IBM personal computer. No. You know that, and he knows that. The love of Christ constrains us. Let's pray about it. Lord, I'm sure that many, many of the men here, maybe all of us, feel like we're pretty unselfish. We give. We may not give as much as we should, but we give. We share. Maybe not as much as we should, but we do it. We're open. We're interested. And yet, when it comes to penetrating the pagan society of our world, we freeze. We leave it to Gail Jacksons, the Winston Parkers, the Lynn Littles, the Bob Fosters, the pros. Who am I? Who is sufficient? And yet we come back to this fifth chapter. Therefore, knowing the terror, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men for the love of Christ constrains us. And Lord, if you have so designed reconciliation that you want me to be an ambassador, to be a worker, to be a servant, not only to see these men come to Jesus, but then help them to disciple them and bring them along so they can reproduce after their kind. On this Saturday morning, 
Help me. Help me, Lord. I can't do it. This is where body life comes in, O God. Two are better than one, for if one fall, he has the other to lift him up. And we need each other. We need to get involved with those who have got a passion. As Napoleon Hill says, we'll never make it unless we're obsessed with our goal. God, you were so obsessed with mankind that you took your son, Jesus Christ, and allowed him to be born through a virgin. And for 33 years, he lived here. And he took my sin in his own body. And there on that cruel cross, he shed his blood. He died for me. That henceforth, I should not live unto myself, but unto him. And to him we give the glory and praise. Amen.